I want us to consider some questions. Do you feel as though you are doing more but getting less done? Do you feel like life is more of a job than an adventure? Do you hide behind a facade, putting on a good front, creating the impression that things are just great, and the fact is they aren't? Do you feel as though your energy tank is running on empty? Does your Christianity feel mundane and routine? Do you feel overextended and don't know what to do? Do you feel like you're on a treadmill and don't know how to get off? Do you feel like life is a rat race and the rats are ahead? The answer yes to one or more of these questions describes someone that is being faithful but is feeling unfulfilled. There are more and more people that are busier now than ever and are still not finding fulfillment. Luke chapter 10 describes someone who felt unfulfilled because she ignored the most essential dimension of someone's spiritual health. Let's see what she was missing. I might interject a footnote. This is the only time this account is mentioned in the Gospels. Notice Luke 10, starting at verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village. This village was Bethany. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Verse 39, and she had a sister named Mary. Jesus was a guest at the home of some of his closest friends. And those friends were Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Notice the house Jesus met them at was Martha's house. Martha might have been a single person because there's no mention of a husband at that house. She might have even been a single mother but we aren't sure about that. Martha is probably the oldest of the sisters, and she was the hostess at this occasion. Verse 39, and she, meaning Martha, had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone. Therefore, tell her to help me. Please notice the difference in these two sisters. Mary was more relational. She was more relational because it is said she just wanted to be with Jesus. But Martha was more task-orientated. As it is said, she was in the food preparation area of the house, and she was putting together a meal. Martha was primarily a doer, and Mary was an adorer. Both are important, but the problem is, as it was there and is now, some of us are imbalanced because we are sometimes okay at serving Jesus, but we're not so good at being a friend to Jesus. We resemble Martha more than we resemble Mary. Martha demonstrated three symptoms of being faithful but unfulfilled. Don't miss them. Symptom one was overcommitment. Overcommitment. Martha just had too much to do. Verse 40, remember, it said, but Martha was distracted with much serving. The inference is that Martha was running behind schedule and pushing as hard as she could push, and she still wasn't able to get it all done. Martha had scheduled too much. Imagine Martha was rushing around the kitchen, kneading dough for the bread, 
basting the lamb, cooking the vegetables, finding the best dishes, setting the table, and on and on. She was overcommitted. One commentator said, we get the impression that she wanted to do something special for Jesus, and the result was unnecessary, elaborate provision and much serving. She just tried to do too much. But the other problem was that she didn't have help. Irritated, exasperated, and upset, she had reached a boiling point, and that boiling point resulted in assigning blame. Verse 40 continues, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she, Martha, approached him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Paraphrase Martha said, Jesus, aren't you concerned that I'm going crazy in this kitchen? And my sister is basically out there doing nothing. Could you please go out there and get her in here to help me? Martha's to-do list was not getting done, and no one was helping, and so she was freaking out. Sometimes we resemble that, because we sometimes overcommit ourselves and attempt to do too much. It seems that Martha might have been caught up in what is often called the performance trap, That might sound familiar, the performance trap. Notice the definition. The performance trap is something done out of human obligation, contrived from human strength, in order to gain the acceptance of someone that matters to us. In order to gain the acceptance of someone that matters to us. It is entirely probable that Martha was caught up in this performance trap. And she wanted to feel more acceptable to Jesus, so she overcommitted to perform so she could impress him. Notice the characteristics of someone that is caught up in some form of this performance trap. That person often strives to succeed through human strength. Human strength, meaning there's no conscious dependence on God. Second, this person is sometimes trapped in legalism. Someone is enslaved to a long list of do's and don'ts, where those do's and don'ts are more often man-made traditions than commandments from God. Third, this person demonstrates an imbalance. He or she is more doing than being. Fourth, the motive is to please people. This person is a people pleaser. So saying no is extremely difficult for them. Five, There is constant comparison to other people. And comparison games are counterproductive. Six, this person has manipulation and control tendencies. Sometimes those control tendencies are extreme. Seven, there is no joyfulness and peace. This is a sad and often depressed individual. Eight, this person has extreme reactions to people in situation. Most often that reaction is anger. Nine, this person's relationship with God is unstable. Unstable. These are roller coaster Christians, up and down, up and down. And 10, this person thinks that someone has to earn God's acceptance. Earn God's acceptance. That last one is a blatant lie from Satan. And remember per John 8 verse 44, Satan is a liar. These are characteristics of the performance trap. 
And the solution to the performance trap is to understand that someone's personal connection to God and to his son Jesus is the result of grace from beginning to end. The solution to getting caught up in this performance trap is to understand that someone's personal relation to God and his son Jesus is the result of grace from beginning to end. And that fact is documented on the note sheet. Just some sample verses. Acts 13, verse 43. Paul and Barnabas, who's speaking to them, these were some Jewish people in Antioch, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 18, verse 27. He, this is Apollos, greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Romans 3, verse 24. Being justified, and being justified means being made acceptable to God, being justified freely by His grace. Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 3, verse 7, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, you therefore, my son, this is Timothy, be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Second Peter 1 verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses and others underscore the fact that Christianity is about grace from beginning throughout to the end. Our friends that are part of the LDS Church, um, Church of Latter-day Saints, our Mormon friends, don't understand that. Uh, there's a book called Second Nephi found in the Book of Mormon. Second Nephi 25:23 reads, "For we know that it is by grace we are saved. So far, so good. We know that it is by grace we are saved. Notice. After all we can do, that's not so good. That's human effort. That's works. After all we do negates grace because it is works. Notice Romans 11 verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. The big idea of that verse is that salvation is, is made possible either through God's grace as a free gift to us or through our own human effort and works. It is either grace or it is works. It cannot be a combination of both grace and works because grace cancels out works and works cancels out grace. Christianity is not just another major world religion. It is a relationship. A Christian is someone who possesses Jesus Christ in a relational sense. That means a Christian is someone that at a specific moment in time, space, history, has through faith, not through some religious performance, not through some good deeds, but a person that has through personal faith and trust invited Jesus Christ into his life to become his savior, meaning forgiver, and his Lord, meaning leader. And that all happens because of grace. That happened to famous stuntman Robert Evil Knievel, 
Over his career, Knievel attempted more than 75 ramp-to-ramp motorcycle jumps. And in 1974, some of us remember, he attempted a jump across Snake River Canyon. That didn't go so good. During his career, he suffered, get this, he suffered more than 433 bone fractures. So that according to the Guinness Book of World Records, he was the survivor of the most bones broken in a lifetime. Not sure anyone would want to break that record. Um, On Palm Sunday, 2007, Mr. Knievel spoke at the then Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. I just happened to see this. It was astounding to me. That was just eight months before his death. Mr. Knievel told the congregation how that for 68 years he had refused to accept Jesus Christ as Lord of his life. He said that he had always believed in God, but he couldn't walk away from the gold, the gambling, the booze, and the women. He said, I don't know why I fought it so hard. I just did. I did. But Knievel knew people were praying for him, including his daughter's church, his ex-wife's church, and the hundreds of people who wrote letters to him encouraging him to receive Jesus. And then something indescribable happened to him during Daytona Bike Week the previous month. I'm quoting verbatim from Mr. Knievel at that morning service. I don't know what in the world happened. I don't know if it was the power of the prayer or God himself, but it just reached out either while I was driving or walking down the sidewalk or sleeping, and it was just the power of God in Jesus just grabbed me. All of a sudden, I just believed in Jesus Christ. I did. I believed in him. I rose up in bed, and I was by myself, and I said, Devil, devil, you bastard, you get away from me. I cast you out of my life. I just then got down on my knees and prayed, that God would put his arms around me and never, never, ever let me go. If evil Knievel was sincere in his decision to receive Jesus, and there's no reason to believe he wasn't, then he's our Christian brother, and he's in heaven, and we'll meet him. I'm just curious if he's still giving autographs. Uh, The point is that if evil Knievel can find forgiveness, then anyone can because of God's grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor meaning favor that we cannot merit. We don't deserve it. Grace means unearned favor. Unearned favor means favor we cannot earn. We can do nothing to earn it. So divine grace means getting something from God that we absolutely do not deserve. Please don't forget that. Grace is getting something from God, receiving something from Him we absolutely do not deserve. Sometimes Christians are confused. And Christians have made statements to me such as, Pastor, sometimes I just don't feel I deserve to go to heaven. Understand something. If we could do something, if we could do even the slightest, smallest something to deserve heaven, then people, we wouldn't need grace. No one deserves to go to heaven. That's the reason there's grace. Grace exists because no one deserves the forgiveness that is required to go to heaven. No one deserves to get any good thing from God, but God is good to us because of His grace. Notice five statements about grace and performance. First is God's grace is free to me because it's based on Jesus' performance and not mine. 
and in particular Jesus' performance through his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross. It's based on Jesus' performance and not mine. That's a huge relief because sometimes, oftentimes, I don't perform so good. Second is that God did not love me and save me because of what I might do for him. Remember that we don't have to earn God's love. All we have to do is to receive that love through faith. Third, I must stop relating to God on the basis of rules and regulations. We need to relate to God on the basis of grace and not legalism. Fourth is that God's grace accepts me as I am and then enables me to be and do above anything I could be and do on my own. God's grace accepts me as I am and then enables me to be and do above anything I could be and do on my own. And fifth is that my service to God is actually greater under grace because gratitude and not guilt, gratitude and not guilt is the motivation to do what I do. I am committed to serving Jesus, but I'm not doing that because I feel guilted into doing that. But I serve Jesus because I want to out of gratitude to Him because of what He has done for me. Christian, beware of the performance trap because it can cause us to be overcommitted. Christians are only human. And as the famous theologian Clint Eastwood once said, a man has to know his limitations. The fastest way to burn out is to pretend to be superhuman and attempt to do too much as Martha did here. So be careful. I do realize that this first section isn't applicable to all people. This isn't symptomatic of all people because some Christians rust out instead of burn out, and that's not good either. Symptom two is anxiousness. Anxiousness. Verse 41, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, uh, if Jesus repeats your name, that's a problem. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Martha was anxious. And anxiousness is defined as troubled in mind about some uncertain matter. Troubled in mind about some uncertain matter. It seems like Martha was an emotional mess. The Greek word, merinu, no, that is translated as worried, that Greek word means to divide the mind. To divide the mind. That means someone that is anxious suffers from a divided mind. That person is distracted and unable to focus because his mind is divided. That means if we're worried, we can't concentrate on what we're supposed to be doing. This anxiousness is such a strong emotion that medical science has defined its extreme form as Anxiety attacks or panic attacks. Um, some of us might have had one of those. Some people are so anxious that they start to experience extreme physiological symptoms that totally incapacitate them under certain conditions. Someone that is experiencing a panic attack might suffer from profuse sweating, heart palpitations, fainting spells, shortness of breath, hyperventilating, dizziness, nausea, diarrhea, and other complications. I don't manifest those symptoms often. I don't. But I probably do have, sometimes, a PhD in anxiousness. Some time ago before moving here, I experienced some medical issues. 
were some problems, and I had been scheduled to see a specialist in order to diagnose the problem. And prior to the actual appointment, I did some investigative research on the internet. Probably not a good idea. I found four different diseases consistent with my symptoms that I felt I might, I felt sure I might have contracted them. All of them were fatal. I was just sure I had one of them, but I'm still here, so I guess not. So much for anxiousness. Of the different things we are anxious about, notice 40% never happen. 40% never happen. 30% are from the past and cannot be changed. That's 70% right there. 12% consist of criticism, and most of that criticism is untrue and unfounded. 10% is about health, and that anxiousness only aggravates the problem through creating more stress. And then 8%, just 8% of the things we are anxious and worried about are actual, real problems. 8%. Someone compared worriedness and anxiousness to a rocking chair. It gives us something to do, but it gets us nowhere. It's interesting that in respect to the subject of anxiousness, animals probably have more sense than humans do. Someone said that so far as known, no bird has had a nervous breakdown attempting to build more nests than his neighbor. No fox has ever worried because he only had one hole to hide in. No squirrel ever died from anxiety because he didn't set aside enough nuts for two winners instead of one. And no dog ever lost sleep over the fact he did not have enough bones stored away for his retirement. Human beings are the only one of God's creatures that get worried and are anxious. Symptom three is frustration. Frustration. Notice in the second half of verse 40, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. It was apparent that Martha was totally frustrated at her younger sister because she wasn't helping to prepare this meal. She wasn't doing anything related to this meal. That frustration was so severe, it probably bordered on anger. Martha might have actually been upset and angered at Mary. In a technical sense, Martha also seemed frustrated at Jesus because she basically accused him of not caring about her situation. Because if he cared, she would have, he, would have, he would have made certain that her sister had come in to help. So she really seemed upset at Jesus. I don't recommend being upset at God. I don't recommend blaming our problems on God, one, because God isn't the cause of our problems. More often than not, we are the cause of our own problems, and those problems we haven't caused that are outside our control, God has permitted but not caused. And two, there's no benefit in blaming God for our problems and frustrations. It doesn't benefit us at all. But it seems Martha did blame Jesus. She's upset at him, frustrated at him. She's totally frustrated. She felt he should be doing something about her sister, getting her in to help. Think about the different things that frustrate us. Increasing, frust increasing inflation. And people, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, inflation is, uh, is brutal. 
Consider waiting in long lines. Consider commuter traffic. Not so bad here. Consider computer problems. Consider election cycles. Politics is more than frustrating. I've never been so frustrated in a political sense. Somebody needs to pray for me. I have a bad habit. I sometimes scream at the television. It's not good. It doesn't help. But I'm frustrated. Drop cell calls frustrate me. Lost car keys, which I do about every other day. Children can be frustrating. Marriage can be frustrating. Comedian Jerry Lewis said if he was having marriage problems, he would go into a room, shut the door, play the video of his wedding ceremony backwards, and walk out a free man. <laughs> That's how he handled marriage tension. But a better solution to frustration is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Notice Paul said this, while we do not look, meaning this is something we shouldn't do, while we do not look at the things which are seen, the things which are seen refers to the visible material dimension around us that consists of the things that cause us frustration. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the things that are not seen refer to the invisible spiritual dimension. For the things which are seen, including the things that cause us frustration, are temporary. Are temporary, but the things which are not seen, meaning in the spiritual dimension, are eternal. Paul is emphasizing the fact that the issues and problems that cause us frustration, those things we can see around us, are all temporary. But spiritual concerns, those things we cannot see, those things invisible to us, those things are eternal. And the eternal should be our focus. And that eternal focus can protect us from the frustration of the temporary. If something is frustrating us, then remember this phrase, and this should sound familiar, this too shall pass. This too, this frustration... I'm experiencing, this too shall pass. That actual saying is not stated verbatim in Scripture, although some believe this statement might have originated from Solomon. But the teaching found in that phrase is consistent with Scripture. And that is, all that is negative and undesirable on this earth, all of that has a short shelf life. All that is negative and undesirable and frustrating on this earth has a short shelf life. It is only temporary. And that includes personal frustration. There are some smart, smart people in our congregation. And I am not one of them. I am not an academician. Uh, school has always been difficult for me. I graduated from college, my undergraduate degree, in 1973. That degree was in mechanical engineering with a specialized uh, specialization in weldments and metallurgy. I tell people I was into heavy metal at the time. Um, and I didn't start graduate school until the fall of 1996. It was a distant learning program from Bakke Graduate University, located now in Dallas, but then located in Seattle. I made a total of 12 different trips to attend intensive week-long classes there. I would go, we would go to class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, early morning till night. Um, did that 12 times. 
But before we even attended a class, we read extensively. I've read more than 25,000 pages altogether and did an incredible number of book reports, dozens of them, in addition to extensive class projects. But the most frustrating part of that regiment was the graduate thesis. Um, I wanted a degree in biblical studies. Um, some prefer a degree, a, a master of divinity. Our oldest son has an MDiv, and he had to take Hebrew and Greek. I don't do good at languages, um, so I opted out not taking Hebrew and Greek. And for my particular degree, that meant, okay, no foreign language, but you get to do a thesis. I had to first do a 25-page thesis proposal to outline to the academic dean what I was going to do the thesis on. And I also had to share how I was going to actually approach that subject in the body of the thesis. Then after the proposal was accepted, I started in on the thesis. The problem was I, I just started our fourth congregation. I was overwhelmed. I was pastoring. I was super, super busy. So I struggled to find enough time to do it. And so I got an extension. I didn't realize it at the time, but that extension was scheduled to run out in March 2004. And I was told that I either had to complete, successfully complete the thesis on schedule, or else the graduate school would be forced by the accreditation people to require me to re-register in courses I had already taken. I determined that was not going to happen. I would die before that would happen. So I geared up to get the thing done. I submitted the first draft, and the advisor assigned, uh, that had been assigned to me made some modest recommendations. I made the change as he had suggested and then submitted it the second time to the technical reader. That was a mistake. She basically ripped it into shreds. She made so many red corrections on the document, it literally bled in my hands. I did protest some of the changes, but in the end, it didn't matter. I had to do what she insisted on, and so I submitted the entire document, another draft, a third time, and uh, received it back, more, more recommendations, more changes, finished that, and this time submitted it to the academic dean and waited to see how he responded. I wanted to quit so often. I cannot remember all the times I wanted to just, this isn't worth it, it's, why am I doing this? I was totally frustrated out of my mind. I tend to write like I speak and teach, and that's fine, but that's not acceptable in graduate school. Um, there's this woman named Kate Turabian. In 1937, Kate Turabian, who taught at the University of Chicago uh, for, I believe, almost three decades, in 1937, she published a book called A Manual for Writers of Research Papers, Thesis, and Dissertations. So this is like, this is the standard for college, graduate school, all the way through a PhD. Um, the millions of copies of this have been, have been sold and millions of students have used this and have written to conform to her expectations in this book. I hate this book. Um, this, is a, this is a hideous book. It's a horrible book. Um, I might add Mrs. Turabian is now deceased and probably because some graduate student pushed her in front of a bus. Um, it was so frustrating. 
is so frustrating, the most frustrating thing I've ever done. But someone told me that the frustration I felt wasn't permanent. And if I would hang in there and be determined and be persist, there would be an end to all that. I was told this too will pass if I just refuse and adamant and refused to quit. And so I persisted and persisted. And ultimately I finished my thesis and graduated. This too shall pass. It doesn't matter what frustrations we're experiencing. This too shall pass. Notice verse 42, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Question, what was the one thing Mary did that Martha did not do? It's simple. Martha had complicated things by turning this meal into a huge event and all Mary wanted to do was spend time with Jesus. Martha wanted to do for Jesus but Mary wanted to be with Jesus and that underscores a basic principle. Jesus is more interested in what we do with him than what we do for him. Jesus is more interested in what we do with him than what we do for him. The big idea from this Narrative is that the antidote to an unfulfilled existence is to focus on Jesus. That is the solution. Focus on Jesus. And that is what Mary did. From a practical perspective, how do we focus on Jesus? This might sound like an oversimplification, but focusing on Jesus means spending time with Jesus until he feels close. Spending time with Jesus until he feels close. For some strange, and I'm nervous about even saying this because I'm sure there will be uh, some backlash, but for some strange and almost nonsensical reason, after more than five decades of marriage, this is unexplainable, Hopi still wants to spend time with me. That's... That's almost craziness. I, sometimes I don't want to spend time with me. I irritate myself. But she still does. She wants to spend time with me. That, that has to be love. She wants time to interact with my cell phone off. I, that's, that's just a cruel demand, but she does. She wants time to converse. She wants time to tell me what she's thinking, tell me how she feels. People, that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to talk to Him. We talk to Him through praying. And we should talk to Him as we would talk to a best friend. We should be able to share how we're feeling, what we're thinking. Jesus wants us to talk to Him. He wants us to pray. And He wants to talk to us. And He talks to us through reading His words that have been recorded in Scripture. How often, though, do we ignore the Bible and how often do we forget to pray? People, it isn't that difficult. It doesn't require that much time. I set aside specific time to read and pray alone with God. In addition to that, though, I have a Bible app on my phone. And I often, throughout the day, if there's some downtime, I'm waiting for someone, or I'm at an appointment or something, I will just pull out my phone app and read the Bible. It, it doesn't matter where I am, I have it with me. And pray, I set aside time to specifically pray. I have a prayer list. But I pray throughout the day, often. I pray in the car a lot. I have my eyes open, um, and I'm driving, 
and I'm praying aloud. My lips are moving and people think I'm nuts or crazy, but I'm praying. I'm talking to God. I do it all the time. How close would Hopi and I be if we never talked, if we never conversed, if we never spent time together, we would still be related to one another as partners in marriage, but we wouldn't be close. All Christians are related to Jesus through salvation, and that cannot change, but most Christians aren't close to Jesus. Sometimes we tend to relate to God as if he's some mystical force out there. But God wants us to relate to him as we should relate to a marriage partner or as we should relate to another close friend. In a relational sense, as a Christian, Jesus is always with us. He promised he would never abandon us. But in an experiential sense, we want to feel closeness to Jesus. And that closeness only comes from spending time with him. I've never met anyone that was experientially closer to Jesus than my own father, and especially in his advanced age. I cannot count the times unannounced, because I never called him and said, hey, I'm coming over, I just went over. Um, I can't count the times unannounced I would walk through the front door into his house, our parents' home, open the door, and see him sitting there in his recliner. That was his chair. He met God there, and he also watched the chiefs. Uh, that, that was his recliner, special chair. I would see him there. His Bible would be open in his lap. He would have been reading and praying and reading and praying and reading and praying. As I would come in, he would take off his glasses and wipe away the tears. People, that didn't happen sometimes. That happened all the time. My father wanted what Mary wanted, and that was the one thing Martha didn't have, and that was to be close to Jesus. Remember this principle. The power to be is a priority over the power to do. Because if you are someone, you will do something that has significance. The power to be, meaning the power to become someone, should be a priority over the power to do. Because if you are someone, if you are the person God intends for you to be, if you have maximized on the potential He created for you, then you will do something that has significance, and in particular, something of eternal significance. But don't miss this. The secret to being what we were meant to be is to spend time with Jesus. The one demographic group of society that is more susceptible to being overwhelmed and anxious and frustrated are probably mothers. I've said often, the most difficult job on this earth, pardon me, the second most difficult job on this earth is being a mom. The first most difficult job on this earth is being a single mother. It's difficult. Um, most of us have heard of the long-running television program called Survivor. I don't watch Survivor. I don't have time to watch reality television, which isn't actually reality. It's in its 42nd season. A total of 626 foolish contestants have competed on Survivor. I don't understand some people's motivation. Someone has created, suggested a creative idea for another Survivor series. Listen to this carefully. Six married men 
will be dropped off on an island with one car and four children each for six weeks. Each child is going to play two sports and take either music or dance classes, and there is no fast food. Each man must take complete care of his four children, keep his assigned house clean, correct all homework, complete science projects, prepare meals, do tons of laundry, and pay a list of pretend bills but without enough money to actually do it. In addition, each man will have to budget enough money for groceries. Each man must also take each child to a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment, and a haircut. He must also make cookies or cupcakes for special school functions. Each man will be responsible for decorating his own assigned house, planting flowers outside, and keeping it presentable at all times. These men will have access to television only after the children are asleep and all other chores are done. Each father will be required to know all the words to each song in the movie Frozen and the name of each character in other animated movies. The men must shave their legs, wear makeup on a daily basis, which must be applied either during driving or making for lunches. Each man is required to adorn himself with jewelry, wear uncomfortable but in-style shoes, and keep his nails polished and eyebrows groomed. During one of the six weeks on this island, each man will have to endure severe stomach cramps, backaches, and have extreme unexplained mood swings, but never once complain or slow down from his other responsibilities. Each man must attend parent-teacher conferences, church services each Sunday morning, and find time at least once to spend the afternoon at the park or a similar setting. He must pray with the children each night, bathe them, dress them, brush their teeth, and comb their hair each morning by 7 a.m. At the end of the six weeks, a test will be given, and each father will be required to know all of the following information. Each child's birthday, height, weight, shoe size, clothes size, and doctor's name, also the child's length at birth, weight, time of birth, length of labor, also each child's favorite color, middle name, favorite snack, favorite song, favorite drink, favorite toy, biggest fear, and what they want to be when they grow up. Each father must clean up after their sick children at 3 a.m. and then spend the remainder of the day caring for that child and waiting on them hand and foot until they are feeling better. Each man will have to make an Indian hut model with six toothpicks, a tortilla, and one marker, and convince a four-year-old to eat a medium-sized serving of peas. Throughout the series, the children, the children, vote the men off the island based on performance. <laughs> the last man wins only if he still has enough energy to be sexually intimate with his spouse at a moment's notice. And if the last man does win, then he gets to play that game over and over and over again sequentially for the next 18 to 25 years until eventually he earns the right to be called mother. There you go. And how true is that? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for mothers. My own mother is with you. And uh, when I think of my mother, I think of uh, how sometimes I was a disappointment as a son. I can't take those times back. I wish I could, but I can't. I pray that we would all appreciate our own mothers. And for those of us who are married to mothers, help us to appreciate them as well. 
Father, thank you for this lesson from Mary and Martha. Yes, there is a time to do. We know that. We cannot sit on our hands when there's so much to do to enhance your kingdom on this earth. But more important than doing is being. We need to spend time with you and your son Jesus so that we can become who you intend for us to be. And once we are who you want us to be, we can do so much more and more effectively too. So, Father, I hope we've learned something from Mary and Martha. I pray that we'll become more like Mary than Martha. And um, I just pray, God, that you'll use this message to uh, speak to us and continue in our hearts and minds until it fleshes itself out in and through us this next week. Again, thank you for your goodness and your patience with us. You're incredibly patient, and you're so loving and so kind and gracious, and I thank you and I praise you in the name of your special son, Jesus. Amen and amen.